we are back with another episode of Underrated. I'm Lefty. And I'm Bo. How are you doing today? Hey, we're doing good. We got a super cool show today. Yeah, totally. We've got uh, another episode today. We've got a special episode. You know, I hopped super on special. I hopped on Twitter a week or two back, saw that uh, you know you had replied to a tweet from one passionate soccer fan who expressed uh, some discontent over not having a <laughs> podcast to discuss the World Cup on. Uh, sure enough, uh, we have a podcast. And uh, we have a special guest today to discuss the World Cup. Uh, today, we have the pleasure of being joined by Nicole, also known as Arrogant MLS Fan on Twitter, known for her hot takes, extensive kit collection, as well as her work with Olive and York, a really great bespoke jersey manufacturer. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to give us a little more background about you? You know, pleasure to be here. Um, I feel like you kind of covered everything interesting about me, <laughs> other than, you know, I'm from. The great state of New Jersey. I live and breathe soccer. Some might say a little too much. Um, yeah, you know, Virgo. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with anything, but if anyone yeah. out there is wondering my yeah. uh, my horoscope, I am a Virgo. Um, Wonderful. And yeah. So, do you have a standard Wawa order? I do. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on how hungry I am. So most of the time, I always get a, I get the half, so like the junior roll. Uh, I get the Italian sub on the junior roll. Um, and I get it bread toasted only. So I, I don't know, I'm weird. I like the cold meat, the cold meat and cheese with the warm bread. Yeah, and then yeah. I get a small mac and cheese, and then a nice tea. That's standard I'm, order. I'm getting hungry. I've never had Wawa in my life, and I'm always told that this is this is just a void in my life that you yeah. know, needs yeah. to be corrected. So, um, yeah, it's, I'm hoping it, one it's, day. It's my personal favorite time of the year at Wawa. It's hot gobbler season. Okay, hold on a second. What's a, <laughs> is that some sort of turkey uh, situation? Yeah, yeah, basically yeah. a Thanksgiving sandwich. Uh, some turkey oh, really? gravy, stuffing cranberry sauce, Man. fresh baked convenience store bread. Yeah, I want to. I understand why it's seasonal, because then if it wasn't seasonal, it wouldn't be special. Sure. But it would still be special to me if they had it all year round. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Man, Wawa. Okay. All right. <laughs> We're gonna have to fix this. Jeez. Yeah, we'll have to trek to to the Philadelphia metro area to eat some Wawa. Um. All right, jumping in here. So the round of 16 in the World Cup just ended, and we're all set for the quarterfinals to begin uh, on Friday. We'll give our predictions at the end of the episode, but did anything stand out to you folks from the round? Any players kind of set themselves apart for you? Round of 16, it kind of, it went, I would say it went how I knew it was going to go, minus Morocco kicking out Spain. Um, it didn't go how I wanted it to go. You know, you know how you have like those teams, you have how, like you have how you want the World Cup to go, but then you have how you know the World Cup is gonna go. Yeah, of course. And it went how yeah. I knew it was gonna go. It didn't go how I wanted it to go. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. What well, you brought up, Morocco. I think uh, you know, for me, uh, just just keeping an eye on uh, on Rambat. 
you know, uh, for Morocco. I think that performance against Spain was pretty crazy. Uh, you know, uh, that was that was really uh, one for the ages there. You know, but I, I think he's he's sort of the uh, the core of that Moroccan team. You know, in my opinion, just uh, didn't get to see a ton of the game, but watching a few highlights and. Um, you know, it, it's pretty clear cut that, uh, you know, he's uh, sort of the glue of, of, of that team, in my opinion. But uh, what about you, Lefty? Yeah, you know, they, they executed that their their game plan well. It frustrated Spain quite a bit. But, uh, you know, they know how, they know what their game plan was. They executed the low block. And it worked. And they won on some really, really poor penalty kicks from Spain, <laughs> uh, which kind of pivots <laughs> to the next question that uh, I wanted to ask. So... I don't know how much you follow penalty kicks in the World Cup, but dating back to the 1978 tournament, World Cup penalty kicks have seen a success rate of 80%. Um, but the success rate this year is 20 points lower at 61%. Has this giant drop-off been surprising to you? Um, and do you guys think there's any anything specific causing that drop-off? I don't know. That's, that's actually really interesting. Because um, I want to say, is it maybe like, that they aren't practicing penalty kicks enough. But then I, that would kind of contradict this article that I saw about how the Spain team, like, they practiced a lot of penalty kicks. Yeah, I, I saw so. that too. I saw that too as well. Yeah, I don't know. You know, maybe this is a pretty big uh, platform right now, right? You know, I, it's really hard to pinpoint what the issue is there. But uh, I don't want to say it's the stage. There's been bigger stages historically, but um, um, that is an interesting stat. I mean, that's I, I had no idea. I mean, I, I, I've seen, you know, um, coverage of the penalty kicks here throughout and, and seen it as I've been watching. But um, that's a pretty, pretty significant. I mean, we're talking 20 percent here. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you think about, you know, in, in the penalty shootouts, like, you know, two teams have only made made one shot, which is, uh, you know, pretty astoundingly bad, and they've and they've not looked good in that process. So it's definitely been, you know, something interesting to keep an eye on. Um, sure. Maybe could it be that keepers have gotten better? I don't know. <laughs> hey, that's, I, that's you, you never know, right? I mean, that's a, that that can be a very uh, logical assessment, right there. For sure. And, you know, I, I think there's also just such a large, you know, mental aspect to penalty kicks that, uh, you know, a lot of players who, who maybe don't routinely take them, you know, when, when you see them in those penalty shootouts, um, you know, those aren't players that routinely take them. There's typically only one, you know, standard PK taker. Uh, so it might just be mental in that, that regard. Yeah, also on the club level, too, I just don't think, I feel like I haven't really seen a lot of PKs uh, at the club level, outside of, like, if your team is playing in, like, Champions League or Europa League, but that really only gets to, like, if you're at the final, like, you know, like, you're at a point that would call for PKs. So maybe I think there's just not, like, that kind of brings you to this one quote that I saw once where they were saying, like, you can have all the, like, practice in the world, but there's like no practice will ever be better than actual experience so it's like they can practice sure. it but unless they've like actually been in the spot to kind of practice like working through that mental hurdle 
I don't know. <laughs> makes I mean, it makes total sense, you know? I mean, it's like taking a driving test. I hate to compare it to that. That's kind of a crappy <laughs> analogy, but I'm saying like you you know, you're you're practicing a parking lot, then you're on the spot and somebody's, you know, micromanaging you over your shoulder and you start to break down, right? I mean, it's 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 tough. For sure. And I think that the best penalty takers are also people that that kind of have honed the ability to draw fouls like as a as a skill, which, you know, many players don't do, you know. The midfielders that are coming on for for these PKs they're, they're not players that are, you know, strikers routinely, you know, drawing fouls in the box and sure. setting up, you know, game scenarios in which they have to take penalty shots. Absolutely. That reminds me of the, um, I don't know if you guys saw the um, the final. This is not World Cup related. This is MLS Cup related. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't know if you guys saw the MLS Cup final of LAFC versus uh, Philadelphia Union. And mm-hmm. what essentially killed the union's dream was it came down to pks and you know part of it was that none of the guys who took uh, who took shots were strikers like none of them were strikers and i think that had been a problem for the union throughout the season even though they had a great season was that they were like the fans were like we definitely need more strikers Sure, definitely. Yeah. We, and it was also, you know, extra, extra, you know, sad almost because they were taking him against the backup keeper. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that was rough. Yeah, oh, that was really rough. <laughs> that actually worked in their favor though, because you know, fresh legs. This guy only came in. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of Morocco, who we just touched upon, you know, Morocco along with Senegal were two of the fan favorites. I kind of felt in the round of 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like some of the best and most exciting football is coming out of African nations. Uh, so with the tournament set to expand to 48 teams in 26, 2026, the Confederation of African Football are among the biggest winners with their number of World Cup allocations jumping from five to nine with the possibility of a 10th team being added. Are you guys excited to see how African football will grow over the next four years? Do you guys have any predictions? I'm so hyped. Like, that makes me really happy because I think for me, like, going into the World Cup, and I feel like any World Cup, I'm always, like, I have my teams I support, like, obviously, the United States. But um, outside of that, for me, it's always, like, I want, the people that I want to advance are every non, like, any country from a non-UEFA, non continental team, like, country because those are the countries that routinely win it and are, like, known for winning it, and it's kind of boring, you know? Absolutely. So it's exciting to see, like, teams and fans that you wouldn't normally see, and they finally kind of have the opportunity to to actually, like, be on the world stage. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, I, I share that sentiment with you as well. I mean, um... You know, it's a it's a country that you know. I mean, soccer is uh, is essentially everything to this country, right? I mean, it's it's like hockey in Canada, um, and they live and breathe it. And they should have that platform. And they've produced so many outstanding athletes to to come out of the country. And uh, I mean, they've earned it, right? So that would, I mean, they're going to take uh, Europe's 
take down Europe's total slot, right? For uh, yeah, as so far as I think Europe's slot is staying exactly the same. It's just okay. with the extra allocations because of the expanded tournament. Um, Oceania is getting their own spot, which they've never had before. Gotcha. Gotcha. I believe uh, Asia has has got two more spots, possibly. I don't have sure. the numbers up in front of me, but uh, but Africa definitely the, the African Confederation like definitely expanded the most. You know, potentially doubling their number of spots in the tournament. That's impressive. Yeah, good for and them. I think what's what's also going to help them out a lot too is that in recent years we're seeing, or at least I've seen, more players choose their like. Um, their country of origin or like their ancestral countries over the country that they live in, which is really exciting because, you know, I think sometimes the choices like you're picking whatever European country that you're in because of like the prestige and like the like the higher likelihood of being in the World Cup. And now that, you know, CAF gets more, um, more slots, I think we might see even more players picking their like ancestral countries to represent. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's so yeah. much, it's such a better position for a player too, right? To, to go, you know, get routine minutes at, uh, you know, their, their, for the country that, you know, their, their ancestors, their parents, grandparents, or whoever grew up in versus, you know, never playing on the bench of whatever other country. Um, you know, one of my favorite players is Brian Embuemo from Place for Brentford, but uh, had always dreamed of playing for France until um, Cameroon reached out to him, and he was just the immediate starter winger for them and, you know, played very well throughout the tournament. And it was just great to, you know, kind of see him come into his own, uh, you know, in the tournament for a national team when he had never, you know, been called up to a senior team before. Yeah, for sure. And so, I mean, that, that kind of, not to get too off topic here, but, you know, so the next World Cup jumps up to 48 teams, right, if we fill all these slots here. Do you guys think that bigger's better? Do you think, like, with more of these teams involved that we're going to see more of, like, uh, what Saudi Arabia, you know, was able to do in these little upsets and things like that? Or do you think it's going to be still, you know, we're going to have our teams that just dominate and, um, it's going to be a slow build. Like, you think this is good? I personally think it's great. Um, which, again, I know some people are going to say bigger isn't necessarily better. It doesn't make it as competitive, yada, yada, yada. But I think with the way that the system is, like, as it is right now, and, you know, how, especially with how Ball and UEFA have just dominated every tournament, I think with the way things are, I think this is kind of the best option to see more of those upsets, especially from countries that people have completely counted out just because of what federation they're from. Yeah, absolutely. My, my hope is that the, the teams that, you know, fill out the, the those remaining spots, they're not teams like Qatar that, you know, are in the, in the bottom third of the world, um, but but teams that right. can actually you know compete on a world stage and you know more more teams more variation there's more chances for upsets obviously there'll likely be more blowouts from those top clubs but at the same time there's also more opportunities for those top clubs to lose in unexpected ways right and and that's what i'm hoping for i know that the fear is there's going to be more one-sided 
games and that might take some of that shine off of a tournament that's supposed to be the best versus the best but i think this you know i'm in agreement with both of you i think the expansion is is healthy and i think that you know if it's done correctly it's going to make the tournament even more exciting i you know i, I think we're going to be able to see so many players that um wouldn't have a platform right and um i'm looking forward to that agreed like i think um because i think even just you know you don't necessarily have to be playing for like the like the national team like isn't necessarily like doesn't even have to be that good but if you like if the player themselves have a fantastic game like or even if they're just like really good looking <laughs> yeah, they can be right. like they, that always it, helps. it allows <laughs> it allows more opportunities for um players to break out and um be known on the world stage in, a, in ways that they normally would not have. Like, I keep thinking of this one player from from South Korea. He plays for, um, I believe, I'm probably mispronouncing it, so I apologize. But he plays for uh, Buck FC, or Buk AC. I'm definitely mispronouncing it, so I apologize to anybody <laughs> listening. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but he plays for them. He had, um, was fantastic in every game that he played, but also like he literally went from like forty thousand followers on Instagram to like over a million, and a large in part because everybody was like he looks like uh, like a K-pop idol, like he's a very attractive <laughs> person, and you know even though they got completely knocked out of of the the round of sixteen. Um, He's being like looked at right now by um, by European teams, you know, teams that necess- normally probably would not have really looked at him because he plays in the domestic league for South Korea, and now he's he's being looked at and being like you know going through these opportunities um, sure. Sure. in ways that he normally wouldn't have. Now is that the same the same player that? Uh talk shit to Ronaldo yes it was that guy <laughs> all right he's got my vote it was that guy I got it you gotta but, admire the dedication to being a like the the dedication of being a hater in that moment and it's yeah, the yeah. level of hater that I aspire to be that I learn yeah. another language and I honestly admire it even more because knowing the difference between Portuguese and like Korean, because like Korean is a very like tonal language versus Portuguese. It's a very, it has a high nasal inflection. Sure. So like to go like if South Korea, if Korean is your like native language and you're, that's the base that you're going off of and you're like learning Portuguese, like that's, that's rather difficult. And you know, I just admire that level of hater. And I, I want to be on that <laughs> level of hater. <laughs> yeah, it really is true commitment to the bit. Yes. To pivot to a team not advancing to the quarterfinals. It was right, widely reported today that the U.S. Soccer Federation is currently in talks with Greg Berhalter to renew his contract. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on this development? That's so, like... I don't know, Like, I personally... Like, I think it comes from, I don't know, I personally, I think 
that we could get a better coach. Like, I will, you know, I'll give him credit where credit is due, right? He, you know, was an integral part of, you know, the scouting and, like, getting, essentially us getting the team that we have now, like, being a very integral part of that and getting us to the knockout round of 16. Um, I, I just, I do disagree with his, some of his, like, the choices that he, like, especially during the qualifiers, right? Like, I felt that, like, a lot of decisions he made during qualifying, I wasn't particularly confident, but you know what? Hey, we made it, we qualified, and we made it to the round of 16 after not qualifying in 2018. Um, but again, I'm just a person on the internet, and I've never coached, <laughs> <laughs> I've never yeah. coached the soccer team. <laughs> right, I mean, you know, I'm in the same boat. Like, I, my take on Burhalter is, I, you know, I think he's done really good, I think he's done really well with team culture. Okay, like, you know, I think he deserves credit for for that with, you know, a group of young players, you know, and um, they, they enjoy each other. Uh, I think uh, it's a healthy, you know, clubhouse. And, uh, you know, that's always great for morale. But, so how, how much control do you think a manager has over that versus just a bunch of young players who have been together for a decade in, in different forms? Right. Like, so, like, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's that could be pretty trivial, right? Um, fundamentally, uh I, I don't agree with a lot of the decision making, you know, I just think, and that, I think that's, it's so tough for most people to sit here and say, wow, you could have done this better. Right. You know, uh, the looking, looking back at it and saying, wow, you know, it's so easy from the outside looking in to be able to say bad decision, but I feel like it's one of these situations where it was universal, you know, a lot yeah, of the, yeah. these bad decisions, it's universe. It was universally criticized, uh, across the board. So it's, it's not like just as Nicole would say, just a group of just like haters, right? Just, uh, <laughs> you know, it's this low level haters who, uh, who've never coached before. I, I think it's pretty universal. Yeah. I, th I think that there's this common criticism among, among, you know, a specific subset of fans where if, if you disagree with anything a player or a coach does, it's always, well, have you coached? Have you have you played the sport? Which right. I, I just totally think is uh, kind of an asinine thought because it, it, it doesn't take, you know, too much to, to see that tactically things aren't working, you know, that, you know, a team is not, you know, for whatever reason, they're, they're you know, feeding the ball into the back on in transition play, not attacking in transition. Substitutions yeah. are being made at poor times with players that don't really fit the scheme like like those things are, are very surface level and if a coach is making those low level mistakes you know that there's fundamentally deeper issues with just their entire you know kind of tactical structure right no i agree with that i agree with that we see that a lot in in, in major sports and you know this is no different and again i know it's it's a big stage but uh um i think all the uh, you know, criticism that has been received uh, on the, you know, uh, as far as Burkhalter goes, I think, uh, you know, across the board, we, we all know why. Um, I'm not sure what was happening there. Yeah. I am yeah. still like, like, I, I think it's one of the things where it's like, I would 100% love to be proven wrong about um, Burkhalter. Like, that is one thing I, I like, I want is like, I never want 
the team to lose. And I never want Berhalter to fail. Like, I'm not being like, <laughs> like he's failing. Sure. Because if he's right. failing, then that means the team is failing. And I don't want that. I want to be proven wrong by him. Um, I guess to say my feelings about him at best are just like very lukewarm. Um, and, you know, I, it is, I guess you could still say that they're still rebuilding, um, considering that this team is still pretty young. Um, but I, listen, if he, if he gets that contract extended, like he needs to, he needs to pick up the pace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, it's just pretty interesting, right? I mean, I feel like what I've read the most on my end and what I've seen and I, what I've been critical of is, is really just the in-game adjustments and, and the subs. Like, I mean, really, those those two are really the pillars of a lot of the complaints here. I You know, I, I feel like, I mean, obviously, we talk about chance creation, defense, different things like that, but, you know, specific decisions that lie within his control. We're talking, you know, not performance-related, but in-game adjustments and, and subs that that's been an issue right so um but who knows right with the future you you learn from your mistakes things happen you know anything can happen but uh you know i agree i mean i I think we could probably do a little bit better um i'd be curious to see what the players thought i feel like for sure like there have been definitely time actually a lot of times um in games where i'm i definitely feel like like i'm watching it and i feel like we are doing well right now because of the talent of the team and not because of the tactical decision that Berhalter is making. Um, which I think is like, it's a really big thing. Like, cause there are, I feel like there are, like you can have the best team in the world and you can, but you can only ride so much on, on that, that the individual players are really, really talented. Because they don't have like the tactical like um, like the tactical direction, then they're only going to do as well as the tactical direction that they're given. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Totally. There's always things to question. It'll be an interesting. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Obviously, there are um, objectively better candidates out there. Uh, we'll see what happens. Pivoting here, is there somebody you wanted to talk about today? Yeah, so uh, Nicole, I don't know if you've you've listened to the show, but uh, you know every episode we we kind of just you know cover two stories, two athletes that we feel um, you know could be underrated or or, or possibly um, properly rated or you know just whatever. <laughs> but uh, last week I did a story on um, Wat Masaka. Wat Masaka, the first person uh, of color and of Asian descent to play in the NBA. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of barriers broken in sports over the years, and over time we've watched diversity take on a new meaning. But we don't always hear the stories of those who help bridge that gap. So I wanted to continue down this same path again this week. You know, we don't talk a lot, a lot about the NHL, right? And number one, I've self-admittingly become a fair-weather hockey fan over the years, almost since the Blues won the Stanley Cup. And I think it's difficult because... Hockey is happening at the same time so many other sports are, right? Uh, This year being even more difficult. But I'm going to talk about a player who had a short professional career, as did Watt Masaka, 
but made a historical impact on the game of hockey. Yet somehow, his name is rarely mentioned these days, and today we're going to talk about Willie O'Ree. So what's unique is that we're talking about a black Canadian hockey player in the 1950s in Boston, right? But we got to start from the beginning. So to understand... In Boston, right? In the 50s. Um, to understand Ori's story, uh, we have to go back to 1956. So two years before his NHL debut, he was hit in his right eye by a puck and actually lost vision in that eye. But he didn't tell anyone. Didn't tell his family, didn't tell friends, didn't tell teammates. Uh, he didn't want this to send his career in, into another direction. So he continued somehow to perform at a high level and was halfway through his second minor league season when the Boston Bruins called him up. And this was January 18, 1958. That made him the very first black player ever in NHL history, right? So he only plays two games that year, and he gets sent back down to the minors. He comes back for 1960, 1961, and uh, immediately experienced opposition from other players in the league. So one famous night occurred against the Blackhawks that season. Now, we've all heard stories about racism and things like this. You know, it was very unique in this time. You know, Ori stated that during the game, he was called several racist names by multiple Blackhawks players. And that leading up to Eric uh, Nestorenko hitting him in the mouth with a stick and knocking out his two front teeth, giving him a black, uh, black eye, broken nose, you know, two black eyes. Um... He immediately responded by hitting him over the head, which uh, started a brawl. So uh, on his way uh, off the ice, Blackhawks players are threatening to kill him. You know, the crowd is shouting, uh, you know, uh, racist remarks. And and that really set the bar. He, He played 43 games for the Bruins, and they traded him to the Canadians that same season. And, you know, he was quoted as saying that the Canadians were ran by racists and wouldn't even invite him to try out for the team had he not been traded. So he finishes with four goals and 10 assists and literally 45 games in his career. That was it in the NHL. Okay. So he, um, he noted that he experienced worse racism in the U S than he did in cities like Toronto and cities like Montreal. But, uh, he returned to the minor leagues. He wins two scoring titles in the WHL, you know, uh, from 1961 to 1974. He scored 30 or more goals four times. I mean, he played all the way up until age 43 in the minors. So, you know, just as we've seen in other sports, this race barrier is broken, but change doesn't happen, right? So after his stint in the NHL, Another black player didn't enter the league until 1974. That's 16 years after his debut, right? So, I mean, you look at two decades here, and the NHL professionally didn't see a single black person on the ice. And, you know, even as recent as 2020, there were only 43 players of color in the NHL, and less than 30 of those were were black athletes. So, you know, we want to talk about the aftermath a little bit. In 1998, Ori was living and working at a hotel in San Diego. Think about this. This is a man who broke a race barrier, played in the NHL, and he's, he's working at a hotel in San Diego. The NHL calls him for the first time in, in 37 years, and they asked him to be the director of youth development for its diversity task force. Okay, And that's a position he still holds today. So 
In the last 15 years, he's received some accolades. You know, we're talking about the Order of Canada. That's the highest civilian award for a Canadian citizen. You know, he, he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame here. Um, he finally got his number retired by the Boston Bruins last year. And earlier this year, President Joe Biden signed the Willie O'Ree uh, Congressional Gold Medal Act. And uh, he received a Congressional Gold Medal for his contributions to hockey, inclusion, and recreational opportunity. So he's the first player in NHL history to ever receive that award. But let me ask you this, guys. Is this enough, right? Do these awards and inductions make up for nearly 30 years of the NHL just not caring about the historical significance of his debut in hockey? Um, you know, or is he just an underrated athlete? And we need to continue telling this story. What do you guys think? I feel like definitely underrated athlete. And like, definitely that's a story that we should keep on telling because I, I mean, granted, I don't really watch that much hockey. I don't follow that much hockey. Sure. But I feel like that story should be told, like, more. <laughs> like that's, that's, yeah, of course. I need a, I need an after-school special on right, this. Right, 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 exactly. Yeah, what, what do you think, Lefty? Yeah, I think definitely underrated. Um, it, it does, it's so interesting to me, you know, earlier in, in the year, a while back now, months back, I did a story on Reggie Leach, who was also drafted by the Bruins. Um, I believe he was one of the first uh, four or five indigenous players in the NHL. Mm -hmm. um, and it is uh, remarkable to me that the Bruins were such a, a team in Boston was so progressive in that regard. Right, right. Um, yeah. A pretty interesting there. But yeah, definitely not a, a story that's told enough. Um, you know, maybe it's it's becoming better known in hockey circles. I also am not, you know, a huge hockey follower. But uh, even though it's a little too late, too little too late, you know, the fact that he is in the, the Hockey Hall of Fame now, um, sure. um, you know, and has that extra exposure to, to fans, even if it's just the folks that walk those halls in Toronto, um, mm -hmm. you know, it, at least something is being done. Obviously, you know, more people should know that story and, uh, you know, his career is something that 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 more fans should be proud of as as hockey fans and should should know more about but at the same time uh unfortunately that's not the way it goes a lot of the time right right Here, here's what i'll say and okay it uh, i'm an old guy so in a sport that over you know the past few decades really especially in the late 80s and the 90s this is a sport that marketed itself as the savior for athletes behind the Iron Curtain. They continue, they continuously exploited stories about, you know, uh, players, uh, you know, uh, Soviet stars that came over here and had opportunity, but they continuously forgot about one of their own. And, you know, we've heard the story of Sergei Fedorov. He escaped, uh, you know, multiple exploits, like I said, on, 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 other players that just added to their already oppressive achievements on the ice. But this was at the bottom of the priority list. You know, they, they have referred to this man for years as the Jackie Robinson of hockey. And yet they've never even treated him with a fraction of the respect the MLB has given Jackie Robinson, which in itself has been very, very little for a very long time. Right? So it's one thing that's important here that, I want everybody to remember is that it's no secret that black athletes have not gravitated towards hockey for multiple reasons, right? Not telling stories like Willie O'Ree's is in no way 
helping keep that door open for black athletes to be interested in hockey. This is something that they should know. The story should be told. It should be at the top of, you know, hockey history. That's hockey history 1-0 run. So, you know, I'm saying for the NHL specifically, uh, do a better job of addressing this issue. Um, I, I think that uh, no matter what we do here, this is going to continue to be an underrated story, right? So Yeah, absolutely. For sure. I, def- I feel like, um, like, again, I don't follow baseball, but, like, I know who Jackie Robinson is, and I feel like sure. this man should be on that, like, same level of, household name recognition um just because it's like not only is it hard like it's hard enough to be an athlete especially a hockey player but to be a player where you're facing like that in order for you to play the sport that you love and are extremely talented at you have to face or you had to face such intense racial hostility and then no one gave you your flowers, so you end up working at a hotel. And, like, I don't think there's ever going to be, like, any amount of money or awards that will ever make up for the time lost. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But I definitely feel like moving forward, they can definitely put their money where their mouth is and, you know really get this guy's like story out and while also making clear pathways for um for black people to play professional hockey and i think it's so interesting that you brought up how like the um that they were really great at broadcasting soviet stories like the stories of the soviet play like you know coming from the iron curtain and honestly i feel that a lot of that has to do with like that's where the needle was at the time Right. Yeah. Like, absolutely. We we wanted were to be the good guys those... so bad. Right. <laughs> exactly. Like they were going to promote those stories because that's where that's where the needle was, and unfortunately, the needle wasn't there for um, for them to promote these types of of stories. And I guess yeah, with everything going on now, and there's more of a focus in in sports in general to get more player, more athletes of color, um, like as professional athletes, particularly in hockey, like that's where the needle is right now. And I feel like that's probably why he's going to be hearing more and why he's getting all these awards and everything. Uh, but nonetheless, it is extremely underrated and it's, and it's overdue. Definitely. Yeah. I think we all agree. Super underrated. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with another story. And we are back. So after that uh, great conversation about one of the pioneers of the NHL, uh, I kind of want to pivot in a different direction. You know, we talk a lot about what exactly makes an athlete underrated on this show. And while that often has meant incredible production in a sport that maybe doesn't have the highest viewership or appreciation or stardom that was outdone by a slightly brighter star or a skill set that wouldn't be fully appreciated until later in the history of the sport. Today I'd like to explore a different direction. Today I'd like to discuss whether an athlete can be underrated on the back of a career that never saw them become a real star or even truly approach a consistent starting role. A career in which their production was rarely prolific 
and largely consisted of doing just what was needed when the true stars were taking a break. You know, Bo, several times throughout our tenure of this show, you've mentioned that, you know, what you've deemed the Seattle basketball Mount Rushmore. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, you know it's included folks like Sue Bird and Gary Payton. Uh, well, well, today I want to talk about a basketball player that really isn't considered a part of the Seattle basketball Mount Rushmore, but rather uh, the, the volunteer host that leads guests on a tour of the monument. Hmm, today okay. I want to talk about Jamal Crawford. Jamal Crawford. All right. All right. Yeah. You know, Jamal Crawford likely isn't underrated as a person. You know, when he retired earlier this year after playing in parts of 20 seasons and being unable to find a contract, you know, during the COVID year, I don't think there was a negative thing said about him as an individual, as he seems like genuinely a good person in every aspect of life, you know, with philanthropic endeavors that, you know, rival his career in terms of longevity and impact. Uh, you know, but unfortunately, that doesn't really change the fact that his overall production likely won't culminate into a Hall of Fame induction, at least right. as things currently stand. In spite of that, I think there's a strong case for his induction and that his car- career really deserves a, a bit of a deeper dive. Were you a Jal- Jamal Crawford fan throughout his career? Yeah, and and I, like I said, I, I want you to be able to tell your story first, but, you know, definitely as a as a human being and uh you know as a as a good teammate overall absolutely definitely definitely you know so after a solid but unspectacular freshman season in michigan seattle native native was drafted eighth overall by the cleveland cavaliers in the year 2000 and then immediately flipped to the bulls after initially struggling with shooting and injuries you know crawford worked his way into more consistent minutes by his third season in chicago even earned a starting role as shooting guard by his fourth season Despite seemingly establishing his footing with the Bulls, he was flipped in the offseason to the Knicks. After averaging nearly 18 points per game but missing the playoffs, Crawford was moved back to an auxiliary role and replaced in the starting lineup, coincidentally by fellow Seattleite Nate Robinson. Nate well, he Robinson. was originally, oh yeah, a, a shooting guard, Nate Robinson. <laughs> was it five foot nine? Yes. Um, <laughs> well, he was originally, you know, shocked by this move. He rolled with it. By midseason, you know, New York media was already questioning if he was the sixth man of the year. Obviously, that didn't materialize that early, but the 25-year-old Crawford, coming off his best season, didn't let it keep him down, and uh, he did all he could to help the team. The next season, saw Crawford again struggle with injury, but worked his way back into a starting role the following season. After putting up career numbers as a starter of the year prior, Crawford was, again, quickly traded to Golden State. With Golden State, he thrived, starting in every game the remainder of the season and showing flashes of offensive greatness that made Crawford such a tantalizing player. While with the Warriors, Crawford put up a 50-point game, making that the third 50-point game of his career, each of which had happened with a different team. At this point in his career, Crawford was 28, had worked his way back into a starting position, averaging almost 20 points per game on the back of strong three-point shooting, and appears to be in a great position to establish himself a regular long-term starter in the NBA. But that's not how things worked out. The Warriors traded Crawford to Atlanta the following season, and over the next decade plus in the NBA, he'd only start 40 more games. Yeah. You know, stuck on the bench in Atlanta behind Joe Johnson and Mike Bibby, Crawford just kept playing the game that he loved. You know, he helped Atlanta reach the playoffs, and in the first series against the Milwaukee Bucks, Crawford came off the bench in Game 7, 
to lead the team in scoring and advance the team to the next round. You know, Crawford's season culminated in winning the Sixth Man of the Year award. The next season was more of the same. Another playoff berth, solid production off the bench, and consideration for the same award. You know, after two more seasons with Atlanta, Crawford signed with Portland, again playing well off the bench. On the move again after that season, Crawford signed with the Clippers. And the story continues much the same way. He plays super well off the bench. The Clippers reach the playoffs. He receives the Sixth Man of the Year award. You know, in his second season with Los Angeles, Crawford again led all reserves in the NBA in scoring, helping the Clippers finish with their best record in franchise history. And for the second time in his career, he wins the Sixth Man of the Year award. You know, this trend continues. Um, you know, solid rotation play with occasional brilliant performances for the remainder True. of his time in L.A. You know, he wins his third and final Sixth Man of the Year in 2016. You know, he's traded by the Clippers and then immediately waived by the Hawks, signs a one-year contract with the Timberwolves prior to the 2017-18 season. You know, while his production had dropped off quite a bit as he got older, he was still a valuable member of the squad. You know, he won the Teammate of the Year award, a, a relatively recent award, but, you know, one that's given to a player that's considered selfless and the, quote, ideal teammate. He yeah. played another full season with Dallas before signing as a COVID replacement for the Nets in 2020, where he played in one game at the end of the season in the bubble. And with that, you know, his career was over. You know, he was never a true star, uh, but despite having all of the skills to become one, you know, he never won a championship, he never made an all-star team, and he currently holds the record for most games lost in a career. You know, over his 20 seasons, he averaged fewer than 23 starts per season. But he still managed to put up some, you know, pretty impressive numbers. He currently sits 62nd all-time in points, you know, well ahead of Hall of Famers like Tracy McGrady, Isaiah Thomas, and Jason Kidd. And he currently sits 8th all-time in three-pointers made with 2,221. You know, and despite playing off the bench the majority of his career, he's among the top 50 all-time in NBA minutes played. Crawford is also one of only two players to score more than 11,000 career points off the bench. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, just insane production, um, you know, from a from a role that, that had never seen that production before. But but that really leads to the important question here. You know, was Jamal Crawford just another rotation player, never good enough to leave an indelible mark on the league? Or is Jamal Crawford underrated? Okay, first, you, you made one mistake. You said the Brooklyn Nets, and because Nicole's on the call, we're going to call them the New Jersey Nets. So let's <laughs> let's get back to that I, first. I, I actually um, just yeah. I actually just called them the Nets. I didn't I didn't, I didn't say, <laughs> say. Uh, Nicole, are uh, are you uh, do you watch any NBA at all? Um, I don't actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, no, understandable. I only watch two sports, and it's rugby and soccer, and it's like an 85 to 15% distribution. Like it's 85% soccer, 15% rugby. Definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah. Uh, those are two good sports, obviously. Um, was a huge rugby fan for a long time. Um, uh, here's what I'll say about Jamal Crawford. Okay. Um, Jamal Crawford, as far as ability, probably one of the best ball handlers in the game ever. Okay. Obviously, the the six man of the year award three times. Um, 
I, I think he only shares that record with one other person, and I mean, that in itself is an achievement. Okay, following that, my favorite stat about Jamal Crawford is he is the all-time leader in four-point plays, right? So four-point plays are shooting from the three and getting fouled and being able to go to the uh, free-throw line and get four points, and he is the all-time leader in four-point plays. He just had the ability, as we said earlier, um, to draw fouls. He just knew that he could make that happen. Um, he suffered, you know, some injuries, uh, early in his career, but I mean, this was a man who was already in his forties and was still scoring 50 points in games. Um, you have to know that the ability is there now. I think as an athlete, I think that his abilities are underrated. I think that statistically he's probably going to be accurately rated you know if if i had to make a prediction i i, I would think i'm not sure as far as you know um the hall of fame voting or anything like that how that would happen uh but yeah so um, so basketball reference currently has his hall of fame probability at 0.0 percent yeah yeah that, that sounds about right i'm sure he'll uh he'll get some random votes here and there but um you know, I think as you say, okay, we talk about whether it's soccer, whether it's rugby, um, baseball, you know, whatever the case is, the importance of having a leader, right? Um, that leader may not be uh, the statistical leader on your team, but it's the mentality. It's the mentorship. It's the um, desire to want to be constantly better. And Crawford just across the board was always known for that right and this tells you why his career uh spanned over 20 years uh for for what nine teams or something like that because he was always going to get another opportunity because you want that person it doesn't matter if they're coming off the bench you want that person in your clubhouse for the experience um so really uh as far as the ability as far as the mindset and as far as it being a human being I absolutely think Jamal Crawford is underrated as a player, uh, most likely accurately rated. That makes sense. Uh, if you're a Hall of Fame voter, do you vote for Jamal Crawford? That'd be a tough one. Be very tough one. No offense to Jamal. It'd be, it'd, it'd be tough. It would be biased if I did because I just, uh, he was one of those guys um, uh, had a great crossover. So as uh, as an athlete, if you're playing basketball, man, you wanted to emulate Jamal Crawford. Just just awesome, awesome ability. But uh, yeah, it would it would be tough. I'm sure there's going to be some good names on that ballot. You know, for sure, for sure. Um, now now with with the you know impressive number of you know points that stack up pretty favorably against other Hall of Famers, you know three yeah. pointers and things like that. How do you weigh those statistics? You know, see, I mean, it's it's really it's really a hard conversation, right? I mean, I know that. Okay, we're talking about longevity. First off, um, there is a small number. I mean, it may seem like a small number, but there's like a top thirty-five or something of players that have played into their forties um, and have played uh, twenty consecutive seasons, and. Uh, every single name on that list is probably a Hall of Famer, right? So that is, that's up there. 
Um, man, it's it's something we would have to look at, right? Because the game is constantly changing. Uh, I, I see I see the numbers that are there. Like I said, me personally, uh, we'll have to see when that ballot comes, Lefty. You know, it's a <laughs> tough one, my friend. What about you? You know, I vote for him. I also, you know me, I don't watch the NBA, but uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for good stories, and Jamal sure, Crawford sure. seems like a, a really solid person. Uh, definitely. Vote. Um, I did find it interesting when I was reading about him that, uh, you know, one, one writer kind of reflecting upon his career said that after, you know, he had voted for Jamal Crawford for the sixth man of the year, mm-hmm. um, Crawford sent him an email to thank him for his support. Just a good guy, right? Just a good guy. L- listen, I mean, you knew what you were getting out of Jamal Crawford if he was healthy. I mean, you were going to get about 18, 19 points a game. I mean, he was pretty solid. Um, but as a player, he just, you had flashes of greatness with just regular play, right? It wasn't like a lot of these players, you just take over a game in any sport, right? You put someone out there. It doesn't matter if they've played. I mean, look at the World Cup, for instance, a great comparison. You're putting athletes that don't normally play together together, and those stars are always going to shine, and some of those players are going to be better because of the athletes that are around them. In Jamal Crawford's case, he was making everybody else around him better, right? You know, um, it wasn't always just him, but uh, it seems like a great guy. I, I hope he's on Twitter. We need to make sure we yeah, tag he, him in this. He is. All right? he is. Maybe he'll, yeah. he'll probably send Nicole a thank you. Yeah, he probably... Uh, <laughs> Nicole's like, hey, guess what? I'm uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch a little bit of NBA here. <laughs> yeah, gonna watch this, gonna gonna watch some uh, some Crawford highlights. Definitely. I feel like based off Definitely. of what you guys said, like I wouldn't necessarily like vote for him for Hall of Fame just because of you know what the Hall of Fame is reserved for. But if they had like a Mister Congeniality. Um, I like that. Like, if they had that uh, award, I it, I would one hundred percent like I would vote for it. I would stuff the ballot. Like, <laughs> I would commit. I I would I like commit that. voter fraud and, and vote multiple <laughs> times. <laughs> Mister Congeniality, and yeah, that's awesome. There we go. Um, that's a, that's a good take. I think it's and I think it's great what you said. What you said where it's like it's you know not like as you guys are talking the the thought that came into my mind was that, you know, the, the unfortunate thing with sports is that you could have all the talent in the world, but not everyone is going to be a superstar. Like, some Absolutely. people are just going to be really great utility players. Um, and there are players who, you know, like, they play, like, that they're essentially what their main purpose is, is that they kind of hold the team together and they allow for the superstars to to be superstars essentially. And you, there's the type of players that like when they're not playing with the team, you can definitely tell that they're missed because they're not gelling, you know. And I definitely yeah. like I know a lot of soccer stars who are like that, right? Um, and it seems like this is what, um, like, what this guy was. Like, he's yeah. just a great person overall, 
um, you know, essentially help the team together. Um, For sure. And yeah, I well, they should have a Mr. Congeniality type award and give it to this man. Yeah, you, you could you could almost say he was a to put it in World Cup terms, at least this World Cup, he was kind of like the the Vincent Abubakar of <laughs> of the NBA. <laughs> there you go. All right. Um, so yeah, so we we agree. We had one underrated athlete and one potentially underrated athlete. Um, Definitely. That said, before we wrap things up here, do you folks have any World Cup predictions for the quarterfinals? This this is this is your time to shine, Nicole. We got to hear what's I coming out of your mind here. <laughs> we we got some cool matchups. How about we start with uh, Netherlands and Argentina, right? I uh, I picked the Netherlands to uh, beat the uh, the U.S. of A. And uh, <laughs> of course that happened. So uh, uh, we've we've got a tough matchup here, right? I like the Netherlands squad, but uh, Argentina, um, they're favorites, right? So what do you think? I feel like and this is probably my hot take. I feel like they're favorites because of Messi. Sure. Because you know it's Messi, right? Of course. Um, right? And it's like, but I feel like Argentina has a really great squad. Right, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not knocking their talent, but I I will I do think that if Netherlands plays their cards right, I think they could take it. And I say that because like there are like there are games that I was watching where Argentina was playing, and it looked like they had like a lot of um, like they were kind of lacking a bit of depth, right? Sure. That's what I think. That's what I was thinking. And so I feel like if the Netherlands can kind of exploit that, I think they can have an edge above them. Um, obviously, Messi is really good, but I do think that he kind of carries the team a little bit. You know, okay. and obviously you... You want a player like Messi <laughs> to carry sure. your team because he's he's Messi. He's he's the goat. He's the greatest of all time for for a reason. Um, but I think if we were to average it out, I think the Netherlands is like an overall like all together them playing together. Yeah. Yeah, I, definitely, I think definitely they agree. could. I, I could see them kind of edging it over. Yeah, yeah. I think it, I, I agree. You know, I'm I'm going to pick the Netherlands because I, I well, first of all, I want to see it. Um, but uh, I mean, they were, you know, they were really unbalanced in the group stage. I mean, they were terrific against uh, against us, and uh, I think. Um, they they just need to capitalize on you know some of those weaknesses you just mentioned there and you know if um, if they can do that I think it'll be an interesting game and I think they have a chance uh, Lefty what do you think you know I'm uh, I'm rolling with Argentina here um, you know obviously Messi isn't isn't the same player that he used to be but it's been a lot of fun you know watching him transition sure um, you know you know from that you know quick and shifty striker to to someone who's a much better kind of distributor of the ball and he's kind of accepted that role which is pretty nice um especially when you can i mean i think we talked about this a week or two ago but like when you can see someone like ronaldo who you know has not in 
in any way adapted to his aging. Um, Messi yeah. kind of becoming very good at a different position um, is nice to watch. Um, and I think he carries it through. For sure, for sure. I agree with that. Um, Croatia and Brazil, right? That's that's a good matchup there. What, what do you think, Nicole? Who do you like in the Croatia-Brazil game? Oh, Brazil for sure. I yeah. like, unless something happens, right, that Croatia is able to pull one over Brazil, I'm going to say with my full chest, Brazil is absolutely mollywhopping, like, they're mollywhopping Croatia. Yeah. And I've said this from the day that Brazil announced their national team squad for the World Cup. Arguably, they have one of the, if not the, like, if not one of the, the most stacked team in the World Cup. That yeah, they definitely. came to the World Cup, like... Definitely. Their starting lineup. <laughs> it's pretty insane. It's, in, it's insane. The, it's like the a, amount, it's like a dream team. It really is the amount of talent that is on this team is absolutely insane. Like, yeah, they have it's so much talent on this team. I, I agree. I mean, Brazil's, you know, one of my picks for the final. So obviously, you know, my I have no doubts they're gonna be there. What about you, Lefty? You, you, yeah, I'm I'm all Brazil on this easy. one. Uh, they're a they're they're the overwhelming favorites for a reason. Um, obviously, I don't I don't really want them to win. I think a lot of the players kind of kind of suck as people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, that's a different conversation, for sure. Uh, England and France, you know. England, this England squad is one of the best I've seen here. Um, you know, um, what, what do you think, Nicole? Who do you like in the England-France? This is hard because I like players on both teams, um, particularly Marcus Rashford is, like, my favorite player of all time. I don't have, like, to put it this way, I have, like, a rule with my jerseys where... I don't get people on the back, or I don't get I don't get kits with uh, like a name and number on the back, mm-hmm. unless it's like a retired legend, with the exception of Marcus Rashford because Marcus Rashford is Marcus Rashford. <laughs> hey, hey, Bo, can you uh, can you alert Nicole of my uh, my World Cup prediction about Marcus Rashford? No, you 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 give your you give your breakdown. Yeah, what yeah you, you got You have you, to say it since you, know, you came up with it. You know, before the World Cup started, I predicted that Marcus Rashford, you know, he was gonna return to form. He's gonna, you know, make all of those haters eat their words, and and that that he was he might win the Golden Boot, and he's he's right there, you know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This, you know, I I agree. Um, you know, talking about, you know, Harry Kane in this facilitator role, right? And, you know, w- working with Sokka, you know, um, you know, creating space. I think that, uh, you know, these two have been, you know, awesome. Obviously, in my opinion, I think as far as the golden boot goes, it, it might be Mbappe's to lose right now. But, um, uh, yeah, I think uh, this is a tough one. But uh, I think that... Uh, Man, 
I'm gonna go with England on this one. Yeah, yeah, it's it's gonna be close. This is I feel like again, barring anything crazy that happens, this is arguably the most even matchup, I think, of the World it's Cup tough, so far. Right? Like, Absolutely. This is truly a fifty fifty game. Um because you, they both have incredible players, right? Um, like on, like in France, for the France team, you have Mbappe, obviously. <laughs> but you also have, um, you know, Giroud, who is killing it. And he is a fan favorite um, yeah. at AC Milan, which is my favorite team in the entire world. And I think uh, they have this one player on the France team, uh, Teo Hernandez, who has been a very integral part in 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 the in the squad right now. Um, like he's not he's not a goal scorer. Like he's not out here making goals for France right now. But you can definitely tell when he's not playing because they're not playing well. <laughs> like yeah. he is a really important key, and I don't particularly see like. A Teo Hernandez type on England on England squad, um, but yeah, it's just hard. I can't I can't pick one or the other because I think they're both. It's pretty it's pretty evenly stacked. I I do think I do think this might come down to penalties. I think that's gonna be my prediction. Yeah, that's a good call. Well, lefty, you know I I'm going with England on this mostly because. I don't know how much you've watched the last last few matches, but is there a is there a more exciting young talent like maybe anywhere in the world than than Jude Bellingham? Like he's just so good. At what Bellingham's he does. been awesome, right? He, Bellingham he, has been awesome. He could potentially become the best midfielder in the world. Like he's that good, and he's 19 years old. He's just yeah. so much fun to watch. That uh, you know, I I love for someone more fun and exciting to. Uh, to kind of take over and earn this spotlight for England, especially somebody who's not one of the Harrys. <laughs> you know, Nicole, this is totally uh, not to get off the rails here, but real quick, uh, Lefty and I had this conversation here not too not too long ago, and we were trying to figure out if you know for uh, for people from the outside looking in, not Americans, um, do people look at Harry Kane and go, "Wow"? This is a good-looking guy. This is this is a good-looking. Yeah, yeah I think I, I, fella. I, I think I text, <laughs> I texted you and said, do do, do do British people like say about about Harry Kane and uh, Harry Maguire? Damn, those, those those Harrys, those are some cute boys. <laughs> like they, I don't, they don't, they, I don't think they cut it's it a, to the American audience. It's a, no. it's a particular look, right? Because like, I mean, like, think about it too, like. Think about like Prince Harry and, and, and Prince William, right? I mean, for there was a lot of people who were like, "Wow, just uh, just m- amazing," right? And I, I think for the rest of the world, they're like, "Yeah, you know." <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, finally, Morocco and Portugal. Nicole, you're up. Ooh, that I think. Okay, I'm hoping, this is what I'm hoping, I'm hoping for another upset with with Morocco. And I can kind of see it happening, 
mm-hmm. just because I feel like the Portuguese uh, national team coach, I think he is, based on what I've seen in the game, I feel like he is someone who doesn't make great tactical decisions, but has great talent. So the great talent sure. is kind of making up significantly for um, for the lack of tact- tactical decisions. And I say that mostly because how do you have, right, how do you have a player like Rafael Loyal on your team and you are not consistently starting him? And I know I have the AC Milan bias because he plays for AC Milan, (laughs) but he won, like, player of the year um, in Serie A, was on a team, he won the Scudetto with, with AC Milan, and, you know, was nominated at 23 years old, nominated for, uh, one of the nominees for the Balloon d'Or. Like, yeah, yeah. how do you not, and he's also the dude that literally within like, like the first game that he played, first group stage game, legitimately within three minutes of playing, scored a goal. The last game he played in, within five minutes of being on the field, scored a goal. Like, you have this immense talent just sitting on the bench. And, like, you're putting him in as a, as a super sub. And, like, Rafael Leal is not... Like, he's a great super sub. Like, he's a great super sub because he's just a great, a really great player overall. Um, so, with that being said, yeah. <laughs> I do think that um, I, I could see... I could see Morocco kicking... Portugal out of the World Cup. Yeah, I, I'm, I would love to see it. I think uh, I'm gonna go with, I'm going with Portugal because I think that's what's going to happen. Um, I would love to see Morocco just, uh, just make it happen. But you know, historically, uh, six of Morocco's last seven World Cup defeats have come by a single goal margin. Um, that's that's an important stat to think about. And Portugal has won five of their last seven games. In, in, in all competitions in general. But really, um, if Morocco was able to do this, um, you know, before the this year, only three African sides had reached the World Cup quarterfinal and all three failed to progress to the to the to the semis. So um that would that would be huge, right? Um Morocco are they are unbeaten in, you know, in their last nine games in, in, in all competitions. So uh, this this is, I, I'd love to see it happen. I'm I'm going to go with Portugal because I think that's probably, you know, talent-wise, um, it's not even really about that. I think it's just, it, it's probably the way it's going to go, but uh, I think it's going to be a close game. I think it's going to be, you know, like a, a two-to-one situation, honestly. I do think it's going to be another single, you know, goal margin win. So, Lefty? You know, I, I think... There's one determining factor for this game. You know, there there are two different, you know, Portuguese squads with two different levels of cohesion and it all it all centers around um old friend of the podcast, Cristiano Ronaldo. I think yeah. if Ronaldo <laughs> starts this game, Portugal might lose. Um they're probably going to win if the lineup is actually, you know, optimized with the best players, but if it's yeah. if it's Ronaldo, you know, at the helm, you know, the, the the level of just you know degradation that that he has created just in the last three weeks 
just in the world of soccer, like he, he he's he's got some issues, and I, I think he could knock Portugal out of this tournament. If uh, man, it, it just seems like that everywhere he's going this year, he's just wreaking havoc. I mean, it's Man U, it's here, it's just anywhere this man has gone, it's just an issue with someone, something, something's happening. Um, yeah, I uh, How, are are you. Are you okay with him joining your team, Roy? With uh, Newcastle? <laughs> oh no! He, he... <laughs> Sorry, he's he's playing for a different Saudi Arabian club. <laughs> yeah, oh exactly. God. Oh man, no. Uh, I, like... I think. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I was gonna say because I feel like what you were saying earlier was just like he hasn't accepted, like that he's you know that he's old now, um, you know old old in soccer, not old in life. Um, yeah. Like I still think he's accepted that. Thank you. <laughs> I have to make that a distinction for. Yeah, absolutely, thank you. For, for people, um, <laughs> I think he just hasn't accepted the fact that he is not in his prime anymore. He's still a you know, it is what it is. He's still a good player, but he's not he's not the best anymore, and he's not in his prime. And I think he needs to make way. He needs to learn how to make way for these rising stars. Sure. So, to what Lefty said, if Ronaldo starts, then we might see a Morocco win. Right, definitely. And that goes along with the the, the poor, uh, you know, uh, managerial choices that, uh, you know, you, you touched on a little bit earlier. So, you know. Anything can happen. It is the World Cup, so you know I'll be curious to see. Right? Um, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll, be, we'll be watching. We'll, we'll keep an eye on this. Uh, Definitely. We'll we'll see who who gets the most right. Uh, that's gonna do it, do it for us today. We're gonna wrap up. You can check out Nicole on Twitter. Um, her account will be linked in the bio and obviously tagged on all these posts. Um, thank you again for joining us. Uh, yeah, it was thank a pleasure you, to talk with you. Yeah. It's been the pleasure, all mine. Yeah, yeah, and you can find this podcast and every other episode on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts can be found. You can find us on Twitter at underrated pod. That's at under underscore rated underscore pod. On TikTok at the same account. On YouTube at underrated pod, and on Patreon at patreon.com dot com slash underrated pod. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>